This is Christian Questions. Lincoln Chaffee once said, Trust is built with consistency. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Christian Questions. Talk radio with a purpose with Jonathan and Rick. This isn't your typical Christian commentary. We love talking with our audience, and we promise to never talk at you like so many talk shows do today. This is a conversation about biblical topics as we look at them from a different perspective. And Rick, that perspective is based on godly principles, family values, honest dialogue, all in a politically free zone. Jonathan, the best part is this. We talk and you listen, and then you talk and we listen. You can also contact us at our website, ChristianQuestions.com. I'm Rick. And I'm Jonathan. And we are glad that you have chosen to spend some time with us on this fine Sunday morning. And Jonathan, what is our topic today? Rick, our question is, does the same God rule in the Old and New Testament, part two? And our theme text is found, actually we have two theme texts. I know. The first is in Isaiah 45, verse 7. I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create evil. I, the Lord, do all these things. And our second, 1 John 4, 8. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. And, Jonathan, uh, I'm sure you remember, but a few weeks ago, folks, we began an important discussion regarding God and his treatment of humanity in the Old and New Testaments. Now, there are many who say that the warlike and nationalistic activities of the God of the Old Testament cannot possibly be the same as the God of mercy, love, and salvation of the New Testament. So, how do we explain the obvious shift in focus? Well, the good news is there is an explanation, and the other good news is if you stay with us, maybe we can put it out on the table for you. Hey, Rick, you, you sound really far away. Where are you? Uh, I am far away, actually. Actually, uh, Trish and I, this weekend, are in Grand Rapids, uh, Michigan, at a Bible conference, and uh, we're actually staying at the home of some friends of ours. We're in their, in their downstairs apartment, uh, sitting in the kitchen area, uh, talking to you. All right. <laughs> So it's all good. It's all good. Uh, but yeah, we're I'm out of the studio today. Uh, but uh, couldn't miss this one, Jonathan. Couldn't miss this one. This is a big. This is a big, big important subject. It really is. All right. So a few weeks ago, we were talking about the God of the Old Testament, and what we did, the approach we took with that is we 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 did a lot of listening first to a lot of those individuals who don't like the Bible, don't like the way it's formatted, and really don't like God. And we took their word for it, essentially. What we did is we went through many scriptures that they brought, up, brought out from the Old Testament and, and, and explained them one at a time. And, you know, when people don't like something and they want to pick on it, they usually pick on the very worst parts. Of course they do. <laughs> so, so we went through that. So it was, quite a, it was quite an ordeal going through that. So what we want to try to do now is sum up some of that conversation from a few weeks ago, because we looked at God of the Old Testament and we saw a very specific, very clear approach. And the question that we had to keep answering is, you know, why would God sanction the wiping out of nations and the killing of children and all of these things if he is a God of love? And there is a very clear and understandable answer to that. So let's go through and, and, and try to do some summing up. How did God deal with mankind in the Old Testament? And we want to find out the why and the how of the matter. So let's get started, Jonathan. This is going to take a little bit of time. There was the test of obedience and the consequence of dying, and mankind as a race lost God's favor. All right, 
So you had all of these things happening. There's a test. There's a consequence. And Adam and Eve made the wrong choices. So that's what, what you end up with. And so what's, what's God's response to that? Well, this meant uh, humanity can make up their own rules as they go approach instead of a God commands and we obey approach. This is Satan's approach, and we see both men and some angels follow it. Okay, so what happens is, with the sin, with the bad choice, God allows it, but he allows it for the ultimate good and reconciliation of his creation. See, that's the first point. We have to understand that God had a bigger plan than, okay, I created you, oops, you sinned, oh, you're bad, you die. And, and people who are critical of the scriptures, they, they, they put God into that, in, into that perspective. In reality, it was the first step in creating a plan of ultimate good and ultimate rec- reconciliation. Now, the point you just said, Jonathan, that humanity, God gave humanity the ability to make up their own rules as they go, instead of God commands and we obey. Now, he allowed that because it ultimately labels what sin is, because humanity cannot consistently choose righteousness, cannot consistently choose godliness without God. We can, we can sort of luck up a few times and say, okay, yeah, we got it this time. But for the most part, we can't do that. That's so right, because we were born in sin and shaped in iniquity. Exactly. And so God says, okay, it's going to be, make up your own rules as you go. I got that. I'll work with you on it. And I'm going to use that to show you how far off you are from the way it's supposed to be through me, God speaking here. Okay, what's the next point? This is the basis and origin of the types of cruelty and human treatment we see recorded in the Old Testament. God did not exempt any from any part of this treatment. So when we look at all of the harsh, harsh treatments that are recorded in the Old Testament, they did not originate with God. Those harsh, harsh treatments of human to human originated with mankind, but God, allowing them to originate, didn't say, okay, I'm going to exempt any of you from it. I'm going to let you all experience it, because that is what sin produces. And a good parent lets their child experience and understand the consequences of a wrong decision. That's right. And Rick, when we did that last program, we saw how man's injustice to man was so sinister beyond what we found in the Old Testament. Yeah, yeah, you're right. And sinister is a really good word. Uh, and, and, you know, you can't pin that all of God. No, you all, can't. All on God. Right. And so, so he allowed all to be subject to that dark path and, and the results of the make-it-up-as-you-go approach. And I really want to stress that, Jonathan, because that's what God gave us. He gave us, as, 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 a, as a race, a make-it-up-as-you-go approach. Okay, fine. You want, to, you want to follow Satan, you want to do it your way, then go ahead and see how well you do. I'm going to help you along the way, but I'm not going to change the approach. And that's the key. That's the key. So we're going through, folks, we're, we're sort of reiterating some of the things we talked about a few weeks ago when we started this subject, does the same God rule in the Old and New Testaments? Our answer is absolutely, positively yes, and yes, they make sense when you put the Old and New Testament together, and today we're going to really try to, to, to put it on the table as to why it really does make sense. So, on to the next point. Within the context of this death sentence, there would be very few who would choose to follow righteousness and thereby ma- maintain some, some favor of God. Okay, so 
God allowed individuals to choose righteousness, and he would bless them specially, uh, but it turned out there would be very few. Because let's face it, when you can make up the rules as you go and do it the way you want, or you have to follow God's way, most people choose make up the rules as you go. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Because it suits me better. It suits me better because then I get to be God, essentially. But God let man choose. So built upon that, you had the world turn very dark and evil, and then you had the angels doing things they shouldn't be doing, and then you had the world in a bigger mess, because it was not just the sin of humanity, but it was the sin of the angelic beings, and so now Noah comes on the scene. And, w- and what does Noah do? Well, he's a righteous man in a polluted world. He saved humanity and kept the thread of God's favor intact. Humanity would still be, for the most part, uh, seek its own ways and rules. So, God did not stand in the way of all of that mess. Now, he destroyed those things which needed to be destroyed. But let's remember, and Jonathan, if you remember a few weeks ago when we were talking about this, we kept going back to the point that God is the God of life. That's right. God is the God of creation. God is the God of reconciliation. And so when you see God destroying, you have to ask yourself the question, is that the character of God, or is God destroying because sin has put destruction in place as a consequence, but God has a bigger plan later. And God is the God of resurrection also. Yes, and that was the other point, right. (laughs) Right. So reconciliation and resurrection. God created with the intention of that creation having something good to offer uh, and and a, a good future. And all those things we looked at last time in the Old Testament, you know, it wasn't a very good future at all. No. So God did not stand in the way of the fallen human will, even after Noah. Even after Noah, and there's a whole new start, God still allowed them to do what they would do. And of course, what did they do right away? Well, not right away, but they built the Tower of Babel. Uh, yeah, great. <laughs> yeah, I mean, didn't you learn anything? <laughs> so it just shows how far sin brings us away from righteousness. You're okay. listening to Christian Questions uh, with Jonathan and Rick. Our subject, does the same God rule in the Old and New Testament? If you have a thought, give us a call at 866-985-4255. That's 866-985-4ALL. We're live Sunday mornings from 7 to 9. That means we're on right now. And our website, ChristianQuestions.com. All right. So as we're going through sort of a recap of that last program, um, we're, we're looking at the evil and the darkness of mankind to mankind and saying, you know, how come God did that? And the answer is God didn't. God allowed it to reveal how godless actions, activity, and thinking turn out. That's the bottom line. Now, we keep saying God is a God of reconciliation and God of resurrection. So let's get on to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We're moving through the Old Testament here. What, what about them? Three individuals through whom a specific promise of favor had been given, which held worldwide implications. Okay, worldwide implications, because that promise given to Abraham, we're going to get into it a little bit later, was specific about blessing all the nations of the earth. But even these, even Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, were allowed to be subject to walking the darkening path that sin that sinful man was developing. Just because God favored them, he didn't lift them out of sin. He didn't change everything about the, their lives. He simply blessed them in the lives that they had. So his approach was, all mankind are going to experience the sinfulness of sin, even those whom I favor are still going to experience it. 
So we've got Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So now God, you know, through Noah and Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, seems to be finding individuals to deal with. But then God's plan expands a little bit further. What's next? That's right. The 12 tribes of Israel, Rick. And now an entire nation is given God's favor, and through that favor, a law for the people is given to maintain that favor. This is marked by miraculous deliverance from the darkness of slavery. And that's an amazing thing, because it shows that God didn't create the slavery. He delivered his people from it. And it just that, so it was there. It existed in the world around them. And then what happens to Israel? Well, the true, they're true to the course of humanity, uh, defies God and often walks the make-it-up-as-you-go pathway. <laughs> they suffer all the injustice and cruelty of other nations, except they have a law that labels the darkening path for what it is. So the difference is they're still going to be walking down that dark path, but now they're given a law that shows them how bad that path is. And yet still Israel still chooses that law. Now the big question is this. Does the New Testament follow this same path? I mean, God is just allowing man to go down this dark path, or is it an entirely different story from the Old Testament? And Jonathan, let's take a a scripture to sort of transition here. Isaiah chapter 6, verses 8 to 11. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. He said, Go and tell this people, Keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. Render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull and their eyes dim. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and return and be healed. Then I said, Lord, how long? And he answered, Until cities are devastated and without inhabitation. Houses are without people, and the land is utterly desolate. Okay, so you have this scripture, and there's something going on, and God's saying, okay, it's time for something to happen. But that's all we know at this point, and it's still an Old Testament scripture. So, so how do we put it all together? This is Christian Questions. I'm Jonathan here with Rick. Our subject this morning, does the same God rule in the Old and New Testament? Coming up, who prophetically was God talking to in heaven? When he asked the question, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Who volunteered from the group? That's next. You're listening to Christian Questions. Welcome back. This is Christian Questions. I'm Jonathan here with Rick. Our subject this morning, does the same God rule in the Old and New Testament? To be a part of our program, call toll-free 866-985-4255. That's 866-985-4ALL. We're live Sunday mornings from 7 to 9. That means we're on right now. And our website, ChristianQuestions.com. All right, so, so Jonathan, here, here's the deal. Uh, in, in that last program, and we took the first segment to sum that up, we see a very strong justice approach. And we understand it did not in any way finish the work of reconciling the physical creation of man to God. On the other hand, it only served to identify sin and how far that sinful race of man had fallen from God. More would need to be done, much, much more would need to be done, because this was just the beginning, the foundation of the work of God toward his creation. So in that scripture that we read at the end of the first segment, Isaiah chapter 6, verses 8 to 11, it sounds like God is saying, okay, there's another step here, who's going to go? Who's going to volunteer to go do this? That's right. So who does? Jesus. So 
Jesus says, okay, here am I, send me. Now, obviously, it's Isaiah speaking, mm-hmm. but we know that Jesus accepted that responsibility. And he's given very interesting instructions. He's saying, basically, don't make it easy for them. <laughs> Great. Oh, yeah. Well, why would you do that? What? Well, Say things so they don't understand it? Right. <laughs> so they don't right. see it? <laughs> so you're thinking, okay, so what, is God playing a game with us, or, or is there more to it? And, and folks, all of this begins to unfold as we go through the process. Here's the thing, and this is ne- the next step, Jonathan, and this is important. How does the Old Testament end, and how does the New Testament begin? And is there a connection between the two? Because if we can see a clear, clear, clear connection, you know that one leads to the other. That's a good point. So let's look at it. Let's actually read, it's a very short chapter, but the very last chapter of the Old Testament. And, And to me, Jonathan, this is one of the thrilling things about the Scriptures, is because you see a harmony where you didn't think there would be one. Malachi chapter 4. So Malachi is easy to find because it's the book just before Matthew, and everybody knows where Matthew is. That's right. (laughs) So the last chapter of Malachi. Let's go. See, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all the evildoers will be stubble. The day that comes shall burn them up, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. See, here you have it. It just seems to be typical of the Old Testament. More trouble, more darkness, and it looks like more death. You think, well, yes, so what's new? But now let's go to the next verse. But for you who revere my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. So in the middle of this prophecy of more trouble, then it says something that just gives you a sense of of renewal. It says... For for you who revere my name, the sun of righteousness will arise with healing in its wings. And you know, when the sun rises after a storm, and you now you get that warm sunshine, it's a it's a healing process. It is. And so we have this prophecy of hope built on top of the previous prophecy of trouble. Now remember, this is the Old Testament. This is the conclusion of that era of time. So now Malachi is saying, okay. Here's a couple of prophecies to be aware of. And now he's going to draw attention to a couple of individuals. Remember the teaching of my servant Moses, the statutes and ordinances that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. So he's saying, remember Moses, this is a reference to the bringer of the law and to the deliverer of the people. And then he talks about somebody else. Lo, I will send you the prophet Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of parents to their children and the hearts of children to their parents so that I will not come and strike the land with a curse. So now he he talks about Moses, then he talks about Elijah, and he's saying he's going to turn the hearts of the parents to the children and the children to the parents. Uh, And because of that, uh, it's kind of a redemptive sort of a work. Sure. It sounds very positive. It is. That's the last reference in the Old Testament, and it's to Elijah and his mission. So now when we go to the New Testament, and you want to find not the first scripture of the New Testament, but the first event of the New Testament, you have to go to Luke chapter 1, verses 11 to 17. And Jonathan, again, to me, this gives us a sense that the old and new are absolutely positively connected. Luke chapter 1, 11 to 17. Then there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing at the right side of the altar of incense, 
When Zacharias saw him, he was terrified, and fear overwhelmed him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will name him John. All right, so you have Zachariah, who is the father-to-be of John the Baptist. And he and his wife, remember, they were too old to have children. That's right. Uh, and having children in those days was, was considered a, a sign of God's blessing. But they were very, very faithful to the law, as best as they could be. And now he's got an angel telling him, you're going to have a son, and his name is going to be John. Well, what has that got to do with the Old Testament? And the answer is, uh, everything. <laughs> Verse 16. He will turn many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. With the spirit and power of Elijah, he will go before him to turn the hearts of parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So he is saying, the angel of God is saying that John the Baptist is going to do the work of who? Elijah. Elijah. And who was the last person mentioned in the Old Testament? Elijah. And who's the first person mentioned in the Old Te- in the New Testament? John the Baptist, which pictures Elijah. So, what you see is it's almost like the story didn't even take a pause. But the fact of the matter is, there was a four hundred year difference between when Malachi was written and when these events occurred. That's amazing. And and the, here's the other thing, Jonathan. So you've got this four hundred years later. The story picks up according to the angel Gabriel, who says yes. John is going to picture Elijah exactly with the same work that Malachi last spoke of. Oh, and by the way, that last talking was 400 years ago. But what it's telling us, and this is an an important thing, and it's a side point, so I don't want to dwell on it. There are some Christian denominations that add several books in between the Old and the New Testament. And what this is telling us, honestly, is that those books don't belong, because you have the transition from one event to the very next event. And yes, there's a 400-year gap, but it's a planned gap so that the right time would come for Messiah. You're listening to Christian Questions with Jonathan and Rick. Our subject this morning, Does the Same God Rule in the Old and New Testament? Part 2. If you have a thought, give us a call at 866-985-4255. That's 866-985-4ALL. We're live Sunday mornings from 7 to 9. That means we're on right now on our website, ChristianQuestions.com, and check out CQ Rewind, the full edition. And, Jonathan, that's actually an important uh, point there, CQ Rewind, the full edition. Folks, that's a free service that we offer to anybody who wants it. Um, You go to the the website, you sign up for CQ Rewind, the full edition, and what it does is it gives you a synopsis of each Sunday morning program. It lists all the scriptures out that we discuss and quote, uh, lists a lot of the commentary out and puts it in order. And with a subject like this, I can see how when you're listening to this on the radio, it could be a little bit complicated. Right, but when you see it in front of you while you listen to it on our archive on the website, do it together. It really brings out the, what we're trying to say. And there's bonus material, graphics, illustrations, only at ChristianQuestions.com. So, CQ Rewind, the full edition, it is a free service. You do need to sign up for it. And what you get is an email with a uh, with instruction on how to get that uh, rewind. And once you get one access to one rewind, Jonathan, you can get access to all of them that we've ever done. Nice. So yeah, it's a, it's a free service. It's a gift that just keeps on giving. What <laughs> so let, let's recap this for a minute, Jonathan, because this is important. You have the Old Testament full of death and destruction. Now, to be fair, 
the Old Testament is full of much, 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 much more than that. We didn't even touch on, in our last program, all of the compassion that God shows, all of the goodness that God shows, all of the building and upbuilding and healing and, 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 and uh, pulling of people together, and all of the morality that God shows. We didn't even touch on that. That's right. Uh, but what, because what people see is they see death and destruction and darkness and cruelty, and they say, oh, what kind of God does that? And the answer is, first of all, the God of the universe doesn't do that, but he does allow that for a period of time, because we, as a, as a race, chose the wrong ruler. We chose Satan as a race over God. And it's what a father would do. It's, a, it's an everlasting lesson that we can learn from our mistakes. Right. So God allows the cruelties of the Old Testament, and yes, he allows his chosen people to participate in the same things. Just because they're his chosen people doesn't mean he lists them out of the world of sin. And we can see that in that Old Testament, you had many of his chosen people still make the wrong choices. Remember, Israel as a nation chose to have a king. That's right, and that was not his choice. He, he set up judges. Right, and, and he said to Samuel the prophet when they wanted to have a king, he said, okay, let them have their king, but here's what's going to happen. And he's basically saying, the reason I didn't put a king over my chosen people is because that never works out well. He even and, gave them all of the, the problems that were going to take place if they had a king, and they wanted him anyway. Right, right. So God gives fair warning, and then when we don't listen, he allows the full-blown consequences to happen. That's a just God. Now, how does God move the plan along? Well, at the end of the Old Testament, you have Malachi, and he is mentioning Elijah. The very last sentences of the Old Testament are about Elijah. He also mentioned Moses, right? Right, right. Now, Moses, so it's interesting, he mentions Elijah, and we see that John the Baptist is picturing Elijah. Mm -hmm. Okay, and we know that because the angel Gabriel said it, so you don't have to guess on that. Right. Now, as uh, Malachi is closing his prophecy, he, again, two heroes, Elijah, whose work is continued in the New Testament by John the Baptist, and Moses. Now, Moses um, is, is the beginning, the representation of the law. Malachi has just told of the coming day of the Lord, and now he says to remember what the law of Moses stands for. Now, what did Moses say? Moses himself say about his role and what he was doing. Well, we can read that in Deuteronomy 18, verses 18 and 19. I will raise them up, a prophet from among their brethren, like unto thee, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak unto them all that I shall command him. And it shall come to pass that whosoever will not hearken unto my words, which he shall speak in my name, I will require it of him. So Moses himself says that God is going to raise up another prophet like unto Moses. And we know that this prophet, like unto Moses, would unmistakably be Jesus. How do we know that? Because who was the one who delivered the the children of Israel out of Egypt? It was Moses. Who was the one who was the leader of the people? Moses. Who was the one who was the bearer of the law? It was all Moses. You're good, Jonathan. (laughs) (laughs) And when you see Jesus come, what does he do? Jesus is the deliverer. Yes, he is. He's the leader of the people. 
He is the completer, the fulfiller of the law. So you have the Old Testament ending, talking about Elijah, John the Baptist, and Moses representing Jesus. So what the Old Testament is telling us is, okay, one era is ending, and a new one is about to begin. The characters, two of the most influential characters of the old era, Moses and Elijah, are now shown to be representations of the work of John the Baptist and the work of Jesus. So God is saying that my work, my plan, is not yet finished. I've got much, much more to do here. That really shows a lot of harmony between the Old and New Testament. Exactly, exactly. And Jonathan, now I want to I throw a little bit of a, a side point in just before we go to the break here. I think that Christianity has made a major, major, major mistake throughout history. A major mistake. And I think that the vast majority of Christianity has fallen into this major, major mistake. Now, what are we talking about? Well, we'll get to that. We'll start to reveal that in the next segment. But at this point, Jonathan, what we have is we have the Old Testament showing us that it is the foundation for the New Testament. We have the Old Testament showing us that it's the beginning of the story, not the end. This is Christian Questions. I'm Jonathan here with Rick. Our subject, Does the Same God Rule in the Old and New Testament? Coming up, so why do the death toll and the violence practically cease in the New Testament? Isaiah 45 says that God created evil. In 1 John 4 says God is love. So, which is it? That's next. You're listening to Christian Questions. Welcome back. This is Christian Questions. I'm Jonathan here with Rick. Our subject this morning, Does the Same God Rule in the Old and New Testament Part 2? If you have a thought, give us a call at 866-985-4255. That's 866-985-4ALL. We're live Sunday mornings from 7 to 9. That means we're on right now. And our website, ChristianQuestions.com. So, Jonathan, in the last segment we were talking about uh, the difference in the Old and New Testament and the approach and how they're completely linked by the end of Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, last chapter of the Old Testament, last lines of the Old Testament, with the very first event of the New Testament, which is the coming of John the Baptist, who's going to introduce Jesus. So you have a continuing story. It doesn't even interrupt, even though there's a 400-year gap. Well, that's amazing that, that we found those links that tied it all together, because it's not easy to find. No, no, you're right. And if you're not looking for it, you're not going to find it. And that's the fallacy of when you have folks, and listen to this carefully, when you have people that are going to go and pick on Scripture, they're not going to look to try to find harmony. They're going to pick out a line here and a line there and and try to find things that, that make it all look bad. If you want to understand something, you have to look at it from the standpoint of why why is it there, why is it written, what can you learn from it? And then if things don't make sense, okay, deal with it. But don't go in there just picking on things and, and picking out line by here, line there, because you can do that with anything and everything. That's so true. Can you imagine if somebody decided to take our radio program and uh, link together uh, some of the things that I say? You <laughs> 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 make me look a whole lot more foolish than I really am. <laughs> so, anyway, Jonathan, let's go to um, there's a, the, the theme scripture, the first theme scripture in the program. 
It talks about God. We'll, we'll read it. Isaiah 45, 7. I form the light. I create darkness. I make peace. I create evil. I, the Lord, do all these things. And, you know, the scripture says, I create evil. And those people looking for trouble say, ah, see, God creates evil. What kind of God is that? How can you say God is love? It says he creates evil. Okay, and here's the answer. And you might not like it, but here's the answer. God doesn't create evil. God allows evil. But the word for evil here doesn't even mean evil. Okay, John, there's a, there's a, um, a commentary. McGee gives a, a good comment here. And create evil. The word evil does not mean wickedness in this instance, but rather sorrow, difficulties, or tragedies. Those things which are the fruit of evil, the fruit of sin. This is the Old Testament way of saying the wages of sin is death. In Romans 6.23, if you indulge in sin, there will be a payday for it. So God is simply saying, he's not saying I make peace and create evil. He's saying I make peace and I give consequences when, when, when you don't follow. That's not creating evil. It's saying, I am a God of justice, and when you don't follow righteousness and the peace that I give you, yes, I'm going to, I'm going to make it so you have consequences. There's no getting away from it. And again, that's what a good parent does. Well, Rick, let's go to the phones. We have Julius from Connecticut. Good morning, Julius, and welcome to Christian Questions. Gentlemen, good morning. Uh, just a, a quick thought on Isaiah 45.7, is it? Yeah, Isaiah 45.7. Uh, God creates evil. In that particular uh, context, I believe it also refers to the punishment that he uh, would bring on Israel right. for their sins. I think mm-hmm. there is also th- that uh, thought there also. Anyhow, on the, uh, the same God in the New and Old Testament, his laws are magnified the Mosaic laws are magnified by the New Testament in uh, Matthew 5, 8, 17. Matthew 5, 17, basically saying that uh, the Lord Jesus says, Think not that I've come to end the law or to uh, deny it, but to magnify it. Uh, on the uh, issue of the same God, again, the, all in the New Testament, uh, this, this uh, thought thrills me because to appreciate it, one has to read and to study God's Word from the beginning, from the New, through the Old and the New Testaments. And uh, remember my favorite uh, uh, comparison or uh, thought is that the New Testament is hidden in the Old. Okay? The New is hidden in the Old. And uh, the scripture you read from Isaiah, uh-huh. that's the Old Testament. Okay? The New uh is Revelation 5-4 parallels to Isaiah 6-8. Revelation 5-4, those two parallel, the Old and the New Testament. And the the Old Testament is revealed in the New. The Old is revealed in the New Testament. And I I have to borrow your scriptures. It's okay? It's okay. (laughs) Uh, You, uh, that's... Malachi four five and you parallel to uh, Luke one eleven to seventeen. That, that that's uh, I, I see a beauty in that and a harmony uh, and the same God is in both testaments. Thank you. God bless. Thank you. Appreciate your call, Julius. Okay. Bye-bye. Take care. And now, Julius said something there. That I think that's important. We're going to come back to in a little while. Uh, he said something about Jesus magnifying the law, and we got to understand exactly what that means. 
because it sure seems like he puts the, puts the law away in some cases. And Christianity, we don't follow the Jewish law anymore, do we? No. Okay, and we're followers of Christ, right? Yes. So how do you how does he magnify it if we don't follow it anymore? And that's another point that we're going to get into later in the program. So Julius, thanks so much. We appreciate that call and your thoughts, uh, Jonathan. One more. Um, one more quick scripture that just seems to show an Old Testament contradiction. First Samuel sixteen fourteen. Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord terrorized him. So it sounds like God is sending Saul an evil spirit. Ooh, what a nasty God that would be. And that's not the point of the scripture at all. Here's the point, folks. Listen now. The higher one goes in the favor with God, the more responsible they have to become to that favor. Saul was favored above all. He became a king where God didn't even want one, but God, in spite of them wanting a king when he said no, blessed Saul in spite of the foolish choice of the people. All Saul had to do was rule in a godly manner, and he had Samuel, the prophet, to help him do that. I mean, so he had it all laid out as to how to accomplish all this. Saul rejects God's way. He decides to do it his own way. God, therefore, rejects Saul. And just like in the garden... God permits Satan's influence to become part, or to become Saul's chief guide. So when it says that God sent an evil spirit to Saul, what it's really saying is God allowed Saul's actions to reap the consequences of a lack of godliness and a following after Satan's ways. So yeah, that's what happens, because that's what a good parent does. You do this, and, and you're going to suffer the consequences. That's he, what a good parent does. He gave does. him all the consequences up front, didn't he? Yeah, he told them ahead of time. Yes. <laughs> You're right, and did it anyway. Okay, let's put those away, and let's get down to the uh, the next scripture. Uh, shows the, the basis for the Old and New Testament differences here. So let's read this. This is um, the in Luke chapter 3, verses 3 to 16, and we're, we're going to take this in pieces. But this is the beginning of the New Testament, and there is a dramatic difference in approach here. And he came into all the district around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So he began saying to the crowds who were going out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones God is able to raise up children to Abraham. So this is John the Baptist doing his preaching. John the Baptist is saying, okay, I want you to come to righteousness. So he's giving a message to warn the nation of Israel. That's your way off track. But he's not giving the message nationally. He's giving the message individually. And he's also warning them that if they don't respond, God can raise up a new nation, new individuals in their place. So he is essentially, one by one, telling this nation, whoever will hear, because he's not finding the leaders and addressing the leaders. Now, the leaders will address him, but he's not finding them to address them. He is saying, each of you needs to individually repent because Jesus is coming. So let's continue now in these verses. Indeed, the axe is already laid at the root of the trees. So every tree that does not bear fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So that's a, that's a tough thing to say. He's saying, okay, we're, there's a change ready to happen. And the crowds were questioning him, saying, Then what shall we do? 
And he would answer and say to them, The man who has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and he who has food is to do likewise. So the people hear this dire consequence that John the Baptist is talking about, and they, they, they respond with practical questions. Okay, what do we do? And the practical answers are individually driven. And Jonathan, this is where I think Christianity begins to make the greatest mistake in, in, in recent history. And that is, Christianity seems to be saying, um, let's take things from a national standpoint, and the gospel is introduced on an individual standpoint. We're going we're gonna to expand that as we go. But let's go finish up these verses before we're out of time here. And some tax collectors also came to be baptized, and they said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than what you have been ordered to. Some soldiers were questioning, saying, And what about us? What do we do? And he said to them, Do not take money from anyone by force, or accuse anyone falsely, and be content with your wages. So now each individual was given a practical application of how to truly repent in their personal lives. And the people that are looking for repentance are tax collectors and soldiers. Those are the ones that the Pharisees didn't want anything to do with. That's right. So John is showing us an individual response, not a national response. And that is a critical point for the way the New Testament was set off to operate. Let's finish up the scripture. Now, while the people were in the state of expectation and were all wondering in their hearts about John as to whether he was the Christ, John answered and said to them, As for me, I baptize you with water, but one is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to untie the lace of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Okay, so it's, it's now John's message is, I am paving the road for somebody who's going to bring true change. The Messiah, who they're looking for. Right. And he's saying that it is no longer about the nation. It's no longer about national interaction with other nations. See, Jonathan, there is a a paradigm shift here from the Old Testament to the New Testament. It's the same story, but it's being approached in an entirely different way. It's now about a called-out people. Why? Does this mean that Israel's time in fa- as, as, as a favored people is going to expire? And we're going to get into that much more in the second hour. And folks, if, if we're not in your area for the second hour, really, we're, we're going to be talking a lot about what we think is one of the greatest mistakes in all of the history of Christianity in much more detail. So you want to stay with us for that. Go to ChristianQuestions.com, click Listen Live, and if we're not in your area, you can stay with us for the second hour. And we'd love to hear your thoughts on it, because obviously what we're saying, I think, is probably not going to be in in line with what what a lot of people think. But the point is this. The point is that we see Christianity as a different kind of call than being a favored nation of Israel. Christianity is a call of one here, one there, one here, one there, to go up to a heavenly calling. And it should not be uh, formatted as a nation, where Israel was a nation saying, we are the nation of Israel, and we and God is standing with us. We think Christianity works a little bit different than that. Okay, so, so Jonathan, as we look at this, at this, this, and it's interesting, because the work of John the Baptist, when you think about it, is technically the last work of the Old Testament. That's a good point. He's, so John the Baptist is still an Old Testament character. Right. Because He is doing the introductory work, just like the other prophets did, to bring Jesus on the scene. And in this last work of the Old Testament, 
John the Baptist is saying to the nation of Israel that you strayed, and he's talking to them one at a time. Now, he's addressing groups, but he is showing each individual, especially the ones who have really fallen off the path, what to do to come back to favor with God. He's showing them to make an individual heart change. Right. And he's showing them that you have to seek righteousness, and when you seek righteousness, when the Messiah, when Jesus actually does come on the scene, and John didn't know exactly when he was coming or who he was, John just knew that it was very, that was imminent, that he was going to be there. John's point is, John's point is that you individually have to be ready. He's not going and addressing the Pharisees and saying, will you please announce to the people that they have to be ready? He's saying, no, each of you individually has to be ready. And this is a change in the way God's plan unfolds. It is a change, and it's built on the foundation of the nation of Israel. In the second hour, we're going to get into all of that, and again, we're going to get into much more deeply the mistakes of Christianity in interpreting all of this. So for Jonathan Eric and Christian Questions, the question for the next hour, does the same God rule in the Old and New Testament, and how does the New Testament work? We'll be back after the news and all of that, but till then, God, the Old and New Testament, how do you put it together? We'll be back soon. Think about it. This is Christian Questions. Abraham Lincoln once said, Sir, my concern is not whether God is on our side. My concern is to be on God's side, for God is always right. Good morning, everyone, and welcome back to Christian Questions Talk Radio with your breakfast with Jonathan and Rick. This isn't your typical Christian commentary. We love talking with our audience, and we promise to never talk at you like so many talk shows do today. This is a conversation about biblical topics as we look at them from a different perspective. And Jonathan, what's the subject this morning? Rick, our question is, does the same God rule in the Old and New Testament, Part 2? Our theme texts are found first in Isaiah 45.7. I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create evil. I, the Lord, do all these things. And our second, 1 John 4.8, He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. So in the first hour, we spent a lot of time talking about uh, the Old and New Testament and the transition between the two. Now, even though there was a 400-year gap, it was an absolutely smooth transition from the Old Testament in Malachi, where he talks about Elijah and Moses, to the New Testament, uh, where the first events are about John the Baptist, who's representing Elijah, and Moses represented Jesus. That's right. They were both deliverers. Right. So we have this transition, and we were remarking that in the New Testament, it becomes an individual call, whereas in the Old Testament, you had the law given to a nation. That's a major, major, major difference. It is, Rick. And so you think about that, Jonathan. If it's no longer about a national approach, doesn't that indicate that God changed his mind? Doesn't it sound like he's saying, well, this didn't work, let me try that? I don't think so. <laughs> God, God's always right. 
Just like right. Abraham Lincoln said. <laughs> That's right. Okay, there you go. And if Abraham Lincoln said it, we can be sure, right? Yes. <laughs> Folks, if you have a thought, it's 866-985-4255, toll free, 866-985-4ALL. We're live Sunday mornings from 7 to 9, and that means we're on right now. And we want to hear what you have to say about today's topic. Post your comments on our Facebook page and go to our blog. Go to ChristianQuestions.com. All right, so... Is it, it's no longer a national approach. We know that. It did now, did God change his mind? No. No, 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 he didn't. And, and here's why. Let's consider the central promise of all scripture and its application. And that central promise began very, very early in human history. It began with Abraham. He's given the promise. And then it's restated to him several other places as well. So let's go back to that original stating of that promise to Abraham in Genesis 22, 15 to 18. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son. Okay, so, so you have God saying to Abraham, you have shown me unequivocally that you are faithful to me. Yeah, and, what loyalty. Yes. And, 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 and that was something that just you didn't see in the human race then, and really you don't see that very much now either. <laughs> Good point. So he's saying, because you have shown your, your complete loyalty to, me, loyalty to me, here's what I'm going to do. Indeed, I will greatly bless you. All right, so you are going to be blessed because of this. Now, what does he, what does he mean by that? Well, God explains it to him. I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and as the sand which is on the seashore. So he's saying, not only am I going to bless you, but I'm going to bless your posterity. And I'm going to make your posterity as the stars of the heaven and as the sands on the seashore. So he's really using very, very uh, uh, big language. He's using, I mean, stars of heaven. Jonathan, you look up and, and, and they're vast. Fans of the seashore, there, there's, it, it's everywhere. How can you count it? <laughs> right, right, right. And what else? And your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. So, God is saying that your seed is going to be victorious some way or other. And what else? In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. So, then he says, your seed's going to be victorious, and say, ah, see, God of war, there it is. But then he says, in your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And, you know, Jonathan, that's such a simple statement, but it's such a powerful message. It really is. All the nations of the earth will be blessed. All of them. It doesn't say, I'm going to select a few nations of the earth, or the ones I like are going to be blessed. It says, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. This ends up being the central promise of the entire Bible. Rick, wasn't this prom this uh, experience with um, Abraham and Isaac? Wasn't that promise given to picture God's son from heaven to be the real sacrifice? Yeah, yeah, because God sacrificed; He gave His only Son, the promised seed of sacrifice, just as Abraham was willing to give His only Son. So there is a very stark picture that you, it, it's pretty much an undeniable picture, and everybody looks at that, and we understand that that's what it means. And people can say, well, you know, what kind of God would ask Abraham to sacrifice his own son? God asked Abraham to be willing to sacrifice his own son. That's what he asked him for, to be willing 
because Abraham knew God is the God of life, God is the God of resurrection, God is the God of regeneration. So Abraham's faith in God was such that he said, whatever God wants, I will do, because God is a God of righteousness. So now, here's the thing. God gives a promise, and, you know, for, for most of us, we'll make a promise, and then, you know, okay, you made the promise, and you just sort of go on with life. And it's forgotten, usually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Not in this case. Isaac is given the same promise because of Abraham. Let's listen now. Genesis 26, verses 3 to 5, the same promise given to Isaac. Slightly different words. Reside in this land as an alien, and I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and your descendants I will give all these lands, and I will fulfill the oath that I swore to your father Abraham. I will make your offspring as numerous as the stars of heaven, and will give to your offspring all these lands, and all the nations of the earth shall gain blessing for themselves through your offspring. Because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. Now he's saying it's interesting. He's saying that Abraham kept all those things. The law wasn't even given yet. That's a good point. That was before the law, that promise. Right, but Abraham lived righteously according to how God wanted him to. He made mistakes, but he still lived righteously. Now, here's the thing. The interesting thing in, in the promise as recited to Isaac here, it's a little bit different than the way it was recited to Abraham. Because what God does, he says, he says my, my offspring will be like the stars of heaven. He doesn't say the stands of the seashore. Okay. All right, now, who did you say that Isaac represented? Jesus. Right. So now let's take that representation and apply it. The stars are the focus of the promise here. Isaac pictures Christ. Right. The followers of Jesus, where do they end up going? Heaven. The heaven. The stars of heaven. Isn't that kind of an interesting thing? It is very interesting. Isaac is representative of Jesus. And Jesus' followers are all promised a heavenly reward, and that's what God focuses on when he repeats the promise to Isaac. You see, and that shows us the individualism of the the call of Christianity. It's not a national, it's individual. Right. Now, when you want national, you go to the promise as recited to Jacob. Jacob is given the promise because of Abraham, and it's slightly different than the way it's shown Isaac. So let's go to Genesis 28, uh, 28, 12 to 14, and see the difference. He had a dream, and behold, a ladder was set on the earth with its top reaching to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham, and the God of Isaac. The land of which you lie, I will give it to you and to your descendants. Your descendants will also be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and in your descendants shall all the families of the earth be blessed. So, Jonathan, there's a difference here, isn't there? Yeah, there, it's not talking about heaven, it's talking about dust. No, <laughs> no stars. <laughs> no stars, it's only focusing on the dust of the earth. So why does God, in repeating the promise to Isaac, talk only about the stars of heaven, and then when he repeats the promise to Jacob, he talks only about the dust of the earth? So it's an earthly focus. Right, because who is Jacob? He's the father of the nation of Israel. (laughs) And the whole Old Testament law was built upon the nation. So here in the promise, Jacob as the representation 
of, of, of Abraham is the earthly part of God's plan, of God's reconciliation process. And he says through this earthly nation, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. It's remarkable when you look at the details how we're seeing the promise given to Jacob is really reflecting the Old Testament work. The promise given to Isaac is really reflecting the New Testament work. Now, let's go to the New Testament and see where this promise comes up again. And folks, if you have a thought, it's 866-985-4255, toll-free, 866-985-4ALL. We're live Sunday mornings from 7 to 9, and that means we're on right now. Christian Questions, a weekly habit that's good for you. Thanks for tuning in every Sunday morning, live, 7 to 9. Join our conversation any day and time at ChristianQuestions.com. So the New Testament builds on the foundation of the Old Testament application. Let's go to Galatians 3, verses 6 to 9. Even so, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. The scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, All the nations will be blessed in you. So then, those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham the believer. So, in those few verses, we're recapping the old and building upon its foundations. The Old Testament is being recapped. Abraham believed God. It was counted to him as righteousness. And then the God knew that the Gentiles would be able to eventually come to God through Christ and say, and that's where the blessing is going to come from. So you're recapping the old and you're building on its foundation. Now let's jump down to the end of that Galatians scripture, Galatians 3, 27 to 29. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. So, this is saying, it's specifically showing that the call of Christianity is the call to inherit the promise. Wow. Right, and and what... What are, what are you saying here when you're saying it's the call to inherit the promise? It's the call to inherit the ability and privilege to do what? Bless all the families of the earth. Exactly. So Christianity is given that call and ability and responsibility just as Israel was as a nation given that same promise. So now you have the promise divided into two different focuses. One was the focus of the Old Testament. The other is the focus of the New Testament, but it's the same promise. See, Jonathan, that shows us God is not changing. He's simply building. He's building something, and he's building something big. God doesn't change. James 1, 17 to 18. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. So God doesn't change, and it's saying that God allowed Gentiles to come in and follow Christ to sort of be leaders in the fulfillment of this plan. You needed the Old Testament, you needed the law, you needed those things as a foundation, and now the New Testament takes that foundation, builds something even bigger, and it's all for the purpose of a reconciliation of mankind to God. God has a method 
is what he's doing in the Old and New Testament. This is Christian Questions. I'm Jonathan here with Rick. Our subject this morning, does the same God rule in the Old and New Testament? Coming up, it sure seems that Jesus changed the law when he came to fulfill the law. Does that sound right? How can that be? I thought there was harmony. That's next. You're listening to Christian Questions. Welcome back. This is Christian Questions. I'm Jonathan here with Rick. Our subject this morning, does the same God rule in the Old and New Testament? To be a part of our program, call toll-free 866-985-4255. That's 866-985-4ALL. We're live Sunday mornings from 7 to 9. That means we're on right now. And our website, ChristianQuestions.com. All right, Jonathan, so we're looking at the the relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament, the law and Jesus, and it looks like Jesus does change things with the law. I mean, let, let's take a look, let's be honest about it. Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 and 39. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. Sure sounds like Jesus saying, well, here's what the law used to say, but here's what I'm telling you. It, it and, does sound different, doesn't it? And his followers seem to be doing the same thing. First John 3.15. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. All right, so he, Jesus' followers are saying, if you hate your brother, you're called a murderer. In Deuteronomy 21.21, 21, it, was, it wasn't that way. Then all the men of his city shall stone him to death. You shall remove the evil from your midst, and all Israel will hear of it and fear. So in the Old Testament, you did something bad, and you were you know, stoned to death, or you're, you're, you're executed for it. In the New Testament, you're saying you you're call your brother a murderer, but there's no consequences of death like in the Old Testament. So it looks like Jesus is taking the law and saying, well, you know, I'm going to pick and choose the way I want the law to be applied. Is that what's happening? This inquiring mind wants to know, folks, if you have a thought, it's 866-985-4255, toll free, 866-985-4ALL. We're live Sunday mornings from 7 to 9, and that means we're on right now. And go to our website and become a Twitter follower to learn about upcoming programs and new updates posted. Our website has over 500 archived programs. Go to ChristianQuestions.com. Let's go to Galatians, back to Galatians chapter 3, and to some of the middle verses that we skipped earlier, because I think this puts it all in a very clear perspective. And Jonathan, after this verse, we're going to get back to what we think is one of the greatest mistakes of Christianity in modern history. Galatians three ten to 12. For as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident, for the righteous man shall live by faith. However, the law is not of faith. On the contrary, he who practices them shall live by them. All right, so this is a little bit confusing. The law was specific in its condemnation, and nobody could live up to it, right? Correct. And that's what it said. You know, everybody falls down because of the law. So, if everyone's cursed under the law because it can't be lived up to, then doesn't that deflate the promise previously given a blessing. Doesn't that say, well, it's not possible to bless because they're all, they all can't do it anyway. What happens with that? How do you put that in perspective? Well, if we go to the next couple of verses in Galatians, skip down to 16 to 18, that's going to help us get it. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, 
as referring to many, but rather to one, and to your seed that is Christ. Now, see, remember how Isaac was a picture of Christ. Yes. Abraham is going to sacrifice Isaac. Isaac becomes a willing sacrifice. I mean, Abraham was an old man. That's right. Isaac was was a strong young man. If Isaac wanted to, he could have flattened him and run away. (laughs) He could have. He could have. He was willing. He was a willing sacrifice because they both had great faith in God. So you have Isaac as the picture of Christ. Now let's continue the verse. What I am saying is this. The law, which came 430 years later, does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. For if the inheritance is based on law, it is no longer based on a promise. But God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. So the promise didn't need the law. The promise stood on its own merit. God is the sole provider. The promise became, uh, the law rather, became a way for people to understand the value of the promise. Good point. That's that's what we have to understand. You needed the law. And actually, I'm running ahead because Galatians is going to explain it better than I can. Let's, let's continue with Galatians three nineteen to 22. Why the law then? It was added because of transgressions, having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator, until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made. So the law was to, if you will, pass the baton to the seed of promise. See, the law was there to label sin. The law was a necessary, necessary part of the plan of God. The, 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 the warlike nationalism was a necessary part of the plan of God in the Old Testament to, to label the sinfulness of man, to show that favor can come to man, but it has to be lived up to. And so you say, well, well what about it? Is the law contrary to God? Well, let's keep reading the verse. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? May See, it... I told you that was an important <laughs> you question. You were right. It <laughs> says, may it never be. For if a law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on the law. But... So, okay, so, so hold, hold on there. So, so if the law was given that could actually bring man to eternal life, then everything would have been based on the law. But what happens? Continue the verse. But the scripture has shut up everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. So the law's purpose here is clearly defined. Now, let's pause for a minute, Jonathan, and let's get into this thing, and we're going we're to start here, and then we're going to read a little bit more of the Galatians verse and come back to it. The big mistake of Christianity. Throughout many, 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 many years, Christianity, I think, has made a dramatic error in the application of what Christianity is supposed to accomplish. We have the Old Testament where, where Israel is the chosen people and the chosen nation of God. We understand that, right? Yes. We understand that it's a national approach, right? We do. We understand that it's one nation versus another nation. Mm-hmm. In the New Testament, when we see John the Baptist beginning the call to people who would eventually be called to Christianity, or have the opportunity to be called to Christianity, we see it's not, is it done nationally? No, individually, Rick. Right. And throughout the New Testament, it talks about the individual, take up your cross and follow me. It talks about uh, give your life as a living sacrifice. It talks about individual activities and individual following. Christianity is an individual call. 
what is the call to? What's the reward of Christianity? It's to be faithful and, and be in heaven to bless all the families of the earth. Right. It has nothing to do with being a nation, does it? No. The mistake Christianity has made, folks, is, and, and look, you, you might not see it this way, and that's fine. You can certainly call us at 866-985-4255 and let us know what you think. But we think that the, the big mistake Christianity has made is, is Christianity has taken the nationalism of the Old Testament and tried to bring it to the New Testament where it doesn't belong. Christianity ought not to be, and now listen carefully, you might not like this, but Christianity ought not to be a political force in the running of nations. That is not the purpose of what Jesus brought to us. It was to follow after him. And he said, if my kingdom were of this world, what would he do? He would fight. He would have swords. He would, he would look to conquer. The fact that his kingdom is not of this world indicates that we are called to a higher kingdom, and our political allegiance ought to be to heaven, not to trying to politically run a country. So Christianity, in its fullest, truest, purest sense, does not belong in politics. Now, you say, well, wait a minute. You know, what about, you know, running a country through Christian principles? Well, I agree with that. And I agree that you should use Christian principles, but it should not be Christianity running the country. So that, again, might be a little bit of a surprise to you, but I really think that is what Jesus was focusing us on. That's what John was, why John was focusing on individuals, and Jesus in the call, remember when he called his 12 apostles, he found each one, and he said what? Follow me. Right. It was an individual invitation. Well, Rick, history shows us that Christianity really messed up. Remember, like, before the dark, the dark ages, that was, that was really bad. Yeah, right, right. You know, you had, you had the papal system trying to essentially run the world, and look at how that worked out. Not well. No. Not well. You know, darkness, sin, and destruction. And they, torture. Didn't, they didn't represent uh, Christ-like character. And that's the point. The point is Christianity is from the inside out. Nationalism is from the outside in. The two really don't mix. That's our thought. Again, it may be a little bit different than you've heard before, but we really believe that that's what the Scriptures are teaching us as to one of the big differences between the Old and the New Testament and why we need to be very careful about our involvement in this world. I mean, one other thing, Jonathan, before we go to back to finishing this Galatian Scripture, Jesus said, or not Jesus, I'm sorry, um, the Apostle Paul uh, talked about being an ambassador for Christ. Right. And when you're an ambassador, are you a citizen of the nation you are, re- uh, you are in? No, you're not. No, you are representing another nation. So you are an ambassador representing heaven on earth. We ought not to put our hands in to all of the political affairs of mankind. Should we have influence? Absolutely. Should we show them Christian uh, uh, principles and righteousness? Absolutely. Should we lead the way by living a life that does things the right way, and should we, should we be willing to give that example in public places? Absolutely. Should the nation be run as a Christian nation? Absolutely not. It should be run with Christian principles, if that could happen. That, to me, is the basis and the sole purpose of Christianity. It's a heavenly call, 
We just happen to be in an earthly form, and the mistake is taking the nationalism of the Old Testament and bringing it to the New Testament. Again, folks, if you have a thought, it's 866-985-4255, toll-free, 866-985-4ALL. We're live Sunday mornings from 7 to 9, and, and that means we're on right now. And if you have any questions on our subject, give us a call or ask your questions at ChristianQuestions.com or go to our Facebook or email us at Rick at ChristianQuestions.net. Yeah, if, you, if, you're, if you're a little bit missed by that, certainly email me at rick at christianquestions.net. We can have a conversation. Jonathan, let's finish this uh, Galatians scripture, Galatians three twenty three to 26. But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Therefore the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ, so that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. So this really nails down the role that the law plays and then what we're supposed to be doing as Christians. The law came after the promise, just as the nation came after and from the individual. Okay? You've got you to you realize that. The law came after the promise just as the nation of Israel came after and from the individual, Abraham, to whom the promise was given. Once the seed arrived, having come through the law and the individual, now the seed was Jesus. So once Jesus arrived, he had to come through the law and through the individual, Abraham. Um, God's planned reconciliation was able to progress to a whole new level. So what you have, Jonathan, is a simple mathematical equation. That's Old right, Rick. Old okay. Testament law plus New Testament promise equals perfect harmony. Right. The Old Testament law plus the New Testament promise, which are both based on the Abrahamic promise, equals perfect harmony. That's where all of these things come together. So what Galatians chapter 3 does is it tells us that the Old Testament and New Testament work perfectly together, and they are each is a different step in a process in the unfolding of the plan of God. So, sin that came to mankind and all the darkness and evil that came with sin was, was allowed to be there, but God had a different end result in mind than just leaving it there. And Rick, that reminds me of the lamb slain before the foundation of the earth. The, the Lord's wisdom was amazing before humankind was even created. Right. So you, you had in God's mind, you had in God's mind the answer to the problem of sin even before sin began. And that puts God in a whole different light, because now he has foresight. He's willing to allow misery to be experienced, so the experience of misery can bring something much bigger, much greater, much stronger, and much more eternal. God knew and God did what he needed to do about it over a period of time, and it's been a long period of time, but there's still more to come. This is Christian Questions. I'm Jonathan here with Rick. Our subject, Does the Same God Rule in the Old and New Testament? Coming up, the conclusion, the moral of the story, putting a bow on it, tying it all together. That's right, it fits so nicely. It's a great gift. That's next. You're listening to Christian Questions. Questions. 
Welcome back. This is Christian Questions. I'm Jonathan here with Rick and our subject this morning, Does the Same God Rule in the Old and New Testament? To be a part of our program, call toll-free 866-985-4255. That's 866-985-4ALL. We're live Sunday mornings from 7 to 9. That means we're on right now. And our website, ChristianQuestions.com. All right, so Jonathan, we need to uh, put this, uh, like you said in, at the end of the last segment, put a bow on this thing. That's right. Uh, we, we need to tie it all together. And, and I think that there's a moral to the story. I think that when you look at the Old Testament and the New Testament, and the great variations between the two, you have to see them as a whole. You have to see them as connected one to another with a very specific purpose and end in mind. So, what's the moral of the story? Where there is a God of justice, wisdom, power, and love, there is a plan that ultimately treats everyone with equal justice and equal opportunity for life. That, I think, sums up the reason for the Old Testament and the law and the allowance of all of the violence and the killing and all of that, because sin, that's what sin produces. And then the bringing of the New Testament, which is the individual call to follow after Christ, all in the context of the blessing of all the families of the earth. So really what it comes down to is it's all just a matter of time. It's just a matter of time and timing. And the... The important thing here is it's God's timing, not your timing or my timing. Because I don't know about you, but I wouldn't have been this patient. <laughs> I know what you mean. You know, you want it, you want to get it done, and and because what happens when you, things go on for thousands of years, what you have is a loud voice of doubt that says, "What kind of God is this? What kind of God is that?" Look at what he does. Look at all the people that cry out to him, and he doesn't answer them. And look at all of the disease and the heartbreak and the wars. And you say, what kind of God is this? And the answer to that is, don't judge an artist by his unfinished work. If there is a God of justice, a God of life, a God of resurrection, a God of plans, he's got it in hand so that all of these things can actually work out to the benefit of every single individual who ever suffered. And that, Jonathan, that's a big thing. And Rick, when God talked to Adam in the garden, he told him to fill the earth. Yeah, that's right. So you say, well, how, you know, why does it take so long? Well, you had to get that filling of the earth thing done. That's right. And, uh, you know, and, and of course, if there wasn't sickness and death, it probably would have happened a whole lot quicker. That's right. But you had those consequences in place that had to be honored and respected. So, here we have it. Here we have it. Uh, it's just a matter of time. It's a matter of timing, God's timing. For, for, to, to finish up, Jonathan, let's go to Ecclesiastes chapter 3. You know, and there was a song about this, you know, to everything there is a season. Yes. And, but let, let's read through this and, and put it in perspective, because this does put the bow on the story. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. Okay. For everything, there's a season and a time. In other words, what it's saying is we can't reorganize the times and the seasons. We want to follow God's way of dealing with the times and the seasons. A good scripture for that is Acts 17:31. Because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed. Okay, so what we want to do is, is understand that, that the Apostle Paul is even saying 
God has fixed a day. There is a specific time in place. There's a time and a season for everything. God's got that prearranged. All we have to do is figure out how to cooperate with God's prearrangement because it's all about his timing. Jonathan, let's go to the phone. All right. Well, we have Randall from Connecticut. Good morning, Randall, and welcome to Christian Questions. Good morning. Happy Sunday, guys. See you, too. We have Exodus 2019. They said to Moses, you speak to us, and we will listen. But do not let God speak to us, or we will die. In the Old Testament, God speaks to us through dramatic action and through prophets. But God was training humanity for something huge. Matthew 10.40 Whoever welcomes you welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. Jesus came in flesh to show that he loves us and to set an example. The New Testament Christian does not speak for God, but acts for God as his love in the world. 1 Corinthians 4.9 We have become a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. Randall, thanks so much. Appreciate it. God bless you guys. Take care. You know, and, and I really, actually, I really like that last scripture that Randall read there because we have become a spectacle to angels and to men. That's the key of Christianity. It's to be a spectacle to show the outworking of God's will through a sacrificial life that's individually called to, uh, and with a heavenly reward. So it really, it really sort of culminates what we see of God's plan up to this point. Randall, thanks again so much. We appreciate it. Jonathan, let's continue with uh, Ecclesiastes. A time to be born and a time to die. Now, the next several verses in Ecclesiastes are really kind of showing us times of preparation, putting the pieces in place. And that's what God spent literally thousands of years doing by the call of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the nation of Israel, the law, the prophets, the, 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 the periods of silence. The, the, the coming of Jesus, all of these things were putting the pieces in place, a time to be born and a time to die. John twelve twenty four. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And so Jesus is talking about the sacrificial life. You have to be willing to give up, to move up, if you will, uh, in, in terms of, of, of uh, bringing life into the forefront. A time to be born and a time to die. The time to die came as a result of sin, but then, Jonathan, the time to die became the way for the ransom price to be paid. So sin came in and death occurred, and it's almost ironical that through the death of Jesus, death will go away. That's right. <laughs> okay, so you have death, the, 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 the door of death open, Jesus dies and therefore closes the door of death, eventually after the Day of Judgment and all of that. What's next in Ecclesiastes? A time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted. All right. Uh, so there are times to, that, that seeds are, are, are sown, and then there are times where you have to reap the harvest. You can't reap before you plant it. You can't reap before the growing season. You can't plant when the ground is not ready. You have to do things all in the right time. That's the point of the Old Testament and the New Testament. Things had to be done in their right time. Matthew thirteen thirty. Allow both to grow together until the harvest. And in the time of harvest, I will say to the reapers, First gather up the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them up. 
but gather the wheat into my barn. So even when things looked like they were going in the wrong direction, even when things looked like the, 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 the planting had gone haywire, because in the parable of the, the wheat and the tares, remember, the, the, the farmer plants his good seed, but the, the Satan essentially plants the evil seed. That's right, the tares. Right. You say, well, it's gone haywire, and, but the answer is no. The time for the separation of the two is not yet. Just be patient. So God has this patient approach that we just don't, we, we, would, we would panic where God is patient. You're right. <laughs> so a time to plant and a time to pluck up what's planted. God has it all in order, and he put the law in place so that sin could be labeled by the law, so Jesus could live to fulfill the law. Because remember, in the law it said that if you fulfill the law, you, you get to live. That's right. Live forever. Jesus earned that right, gave up that right, and canceled the sin of Adam because of giving up that right. So that's why the law had to be there in a very nationalistic approach, because it had to be put in place in a physical sense for all, all of humanity. Folks, if you have a uh, thought, now would be the time, 866-985-4255, toll free, 866-985-4ALL, we're live Sunday mornings from 7 to 9, and that means we're on right now. And the conversation continues online at ChristianQuestions.com. Contact us there with your questions and comments. Also interact with us on our Facebook and our always updated blog. All right, and that's at ChristianQuestions.com. What's next in Ecclesiastes? A time to kill and a time to heal. And again, you think about that and, and you say, well, in God's plan there's a time to kill? Yes, there is. Why would there be a time to kill? Because darkness and evil were brought in by the choice and the decision of mankind. Job 13.15 Though he slay me, I will hope in him. And so it gives you a sense that death and resurrection, and, and, and Job is saying, Job, Job understood resurrection. Oh, he did. And he said, because he was so distraught at one point, you know, God, if you just hide me in the grave, I'll wait till my day of resurrection. He understood that death could yield life because of the plan of God. But it all has to come in its right order. See, people who, who want to be skeptical about God and they want to insult the character of God, what they do is they look at things completely out of order and say, look, God allowed these things, or they'll say God did these things. And it's just simply out of order. Just wait. Just wait to the point in time when these things will all be rectified. And then what will you say? Then you'll say, wow, what a magnificent God. What a great foresight. Wish I could have thought of that. <laughs> Uh, let's go a little bit further in Ecclesiastes. A time to break down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. All right, so you've got breaking down, building up, weeping, laughing, mourning, dancing, all of these different things going on. These are all still in times of preparation. It reminds me of Isaiah 61.1. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to build up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to the prisoners. And again, this is a scripture that Jesus came and announced that he was fulfilling. And he's saying, I have been anointed to bind up the brokenhearted, proclaim liberty to the captives, to bring freedom to the prisoners. And he's saying, he said all of that, Jonathan, and then he didn't do it. Yet. Yet. No, and that's the point. (laughs) Not yet. But that's what he came for. He came because the price had to be paid initially. He returns so that the price that he paid can now be cashed in on. 
So, again, it's God's time and God's timing, and there is a time and a season for all of these different things. And the great thing is the time and seasons, as they change and move forward in God's plan, there's going to be a different end result than we're used to. Let's go on to the next verses in Ecclesiastes. A time to throw away stones and a time to gather stones together. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. So if we go to Isaiah 61, verses, verse 2, the next verse in Isaiah, let, let, let's compare that to those verses in Ecclesiastes. To proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. Yeah, and that sounds so contradictory. <laughs> the favorable year of the Lord. Vengeance. <laughs> to comfort all who mourn. Well, make up your mind. And the point is, God's mind is already made up. All of these things simply have to happen each in their time. That's the point. That's what we're looking at. And that's why the Old Testament looks so different than the New, because different things had to happen to build the foundation from which Jesus could pay the price so that the true Christians could follow after him to be part of the spiritual seed, to go along with the earthly seed, to fulfill the promise given to Abraham. So we've got all of those things, and now we've got a time that are a result of the preparation. Let's go back to Ecclesiastes. A time to seek, a time to lose, a time to keep, a time to throw away, a time to tear, a time to sow, a time to keep silence, and a time to speak. Let's go to Isaiah 61.3 now. To grant those who mourn in Zion, giving them garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of a spirit of fainting, so that they will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord that he may be glorified. And that's the point, the planting of the Lord that he may be glorified. So all of these things are leading up to the right time for the, the things that everybody is looking for, and that's coming to the last verse of Ecclesiastes. A time to love, a time to hate, a time for war, and a time for peace. And that time for peace is aptly shown to us in our last scripture, Micah chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. And he will judge between many peoples and render decisions from mighty, distant nations, that they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations will not lift up sword against nation, and never again will they train for war. Each one of them will sit under his vine and under his fig tree, with no one to make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. So you see, Jonathan, the whole point is that there is a time for everything, and the prophecies in the scriptures tell us unequivocally that a time for peace is not only coming, but once it's here, it's going to stay and never leave again, because that was God's original intention, that was God's original plan, and God, all the while, knew how to get us there. It just took a long time give the experience. For Jonathan Rick's Christian Questions, we hope you've enjoyed being with us this morning. We certainly enjoyed being with you on a tough subject. Does the same God rule in the Old and New Testament? You bet he does. And boy, does he have a plan that you're going to be happy with no matter who you are, no matter where you come from. Just wait. Till next time, think about it.